Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. It is a hot summer day in New York City, and I am in Rockefeller Center. There are people everywhere. The city feels so bustling. I wish you were all here with me right now. But I am thrilled about the two women who are in front of me today. Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg are the co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim, a digital media company dedicated to giving women the information they need to make confident decisions and help them live smarter. And we are going to hear all about it right after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence, everyone. I am so delighted to have my guests here today. Carly and Danielle are not only incredible women who I've known for a number of years now, but they are also the co-founders of The Skim. And in this interview, we are going to dive deep into what they did and what they are doing now and how they are literally changing the world for women everywhere. Danielle and Carly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Lydia. We're so excited to be here. Hi. Well, thanks so much for being here. And I have to be honest, you're my first time ever having two guests. So this is going to be a juggling act, and I love a juggling act. So let's get in there. So I'm going to start with you, Danielle. Tell me a little bit about yourself when you were little. Sure. Well, I grew up in Chicago. I have a little sister. We're nine years apart. So we kind of had a chance to be kind of like only children a little it, both of us. And I know Carly oddly had the same experience in a different way. And I say that because I think a theme that Carly and I both had was like having adult conversations early on, being expected to participate in what was going on in the dinner table. There's always the news on in the background. Chicago is a very, you know, politically active city. There was just always kind of like this buzz about being in the know. And that's what I picked up on from an early age. Loved writing, loved anything to do with storytelling. Took many terms and turns, including like community theater. And <laughs> I think we all might have that in know, our background, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the musical theater part, someone should have told me earlier that that was not going to happen because that was a clear no. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then went to Tufts, started to really kind of seriously hone in on journalism as a career, graduated, went to work at NBC News in DC. While I was studying abroad, my junior year in college, I did a trip and met someone named Carly Zakin in Italy. And I will pause there. So we can find out a little bit more about Carly and how she too grew up in a family where it was almost like being an only child. So tell us, Carly, who were you when you were little? So I grew up in New York City. I do have a younger brother who's four years younger. And while we are very close, we definitely both kind of had the experience of feeling like only children at times, mm-hmm. where I think, you know, as the older sibling, I wasn't good at sharing. And for better or worse, my parents kind of were like, okay, we're going to just have to like really give her a lot of attention. <laughs> I think, you know, I say that like jokingly, but I was actually really shy as a kid and very, very intentional of when I would kind of open up or like let people like see my personality. Otherwise, I was super quiet. I was always really studious. Like I stressed a lot about school, like at a young age, like way too young. I really like 
gravitated towards news, which is funny to think about like describing a kid that way. But truly, like if you look at my childhood diaries, but please don't look at them. But if you were, you would see that I literally wrote my diaries as if they were New York Times above the fold front Stop page. Stop it, really? So I would do like the weather and the date and like a lead at like age nine. But where did you learn that? Wait, we have to dig into that a little bit more. Where did you <laughs> learn that? So my parents, you know, got like the actual print newspaper every morning. Yeah. Um, they got the journal and the Times every morning. And it was very much like a part of, you know, seeing their routines with it. It's not so much that I actually would sit and read it. It just, to me, it was like, okay, this is, you know, when you are an adult, like how you get information. <laughs> this is this is what it looks like to be a grown up. Yeah. I used to watch the Today Show every morning and I would be late for school. I idolized Katie Cork and my parents used to be like, you're running late. And I'd be like 10. And I knew like everything about that show. And 2020 and, you know, so all of these, you know, amazing female newscasters from Barbara Walters to Katie Cork to Diane Sawyer were my idols, like truly, I, I studied them. I wanted to be a news anchor. I wanted to be, you know, I did acting classes, hoping that would like somehow lead there. I was very much like an English student, loved writing, like was in this, you know, high school newspaper kind of thing. And then when I went to college, it was very much like, I'm going to go maybe not into TV news, but into magazines. And I actually like my college application was I literally made a magazine. <laughs> Like, so this is this, like you, this very has been dorky, preordained. But, Your entire life has already been planned from the so age of nine. So you can see the theme <laughs> Yes, here. exactly. So, you know, flash forward, I ended up also taking a trip to Italy as a study abroad program, met a friend named Danielle, and then the rest of sure we'll get into is history. <laughs> this is such an amazing story because there's so often that I have these interviews with women and they start off and there might be one or two small things that ultimately help them become who they are, but... It's very rare that two people, two individuals have started at the earlier part of their life and decided that this is something they're going to get into and then kind of pursued it on parallel paths in a way, you know, not only making fake newspapers, but also creating, you know, these ideas, but also your joint theater love, even though short-lived as it was, perhaps. I will give Danielle the theater credit. I actually didn't get a role in the play. Um, <laughs> I was forced to be stage manager, but I really liked acting. This is the first time I've heard Carly mention that. So I, well, just I used to do acting new. classes a lot, like in middle school, but it didn't pay off. Well, you guys are still young. There's plenty of time, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> you know there are Thank second you. and third chapters in life, so yeah. perhaps that is. So you go to Italy. You're both in Italy. So how did you guys meet? I feel like this is a dating show. How did you guys meet? <laughs> so we went to separate colleges. We both did a program through Temple University in Rome. Probably, like I want to guess, 150 kids or so on the program. There was no internet like in your in your dorm or apartment, wherever you were staying. So you had to be at like the school kind of student center to like get on Wi-Fi okay. or internet. And we both, I think we're doing that and like literally both looking up where the best fried artichokes are in Rome. <laughs> were you next to each other on the computers and you saw this? I don't know if we were next to each other, but we were like part of the same conversation of like, where do you find the artichokes? So interesting. It all started there. And so then what happens next? Because the next conversation was not, we found a place, let's go well, start no. the skim. So, <laughs> so then, you know, we had a lot of fun in Italy and we uh, 
both went back to school, graduated, got jobs, and then wound up working at NBC News. And you were both at NBC News. Yeah, in different parts and kind of crisscrossed jobs between New Jersey, New York, D.C., always in news. But stayed in touch? Yeah, we stayed in touch and we became friends when we were both working in D.C. in news. And that was kind of the beginning, I would say, of the next phase, which was becoming friends as adults, if I can call that like 23-year-old version of me. And uh, the professional part came in more so. We were both in D.C. for a bit, and then we I moved to New York. Carly moved back to New York, where she's from. We became roommates in a very small apartment mm. in the village, both working for NBC News at 30 Rock. And we started to kind of explore these themes that we were both seeing. And I think as roommates, it's really hard to escape when kind of like you're coming home to something every single day. And what we saw was that we loved what we did. We were definitely products of starting off young in kind of a recession environment. So, you know, we graduated college in 2008. No one was getting jobs. If you were, it was really hard to keep a job. We were really cheap. We got to do a lot of things really quickly. And then it was kind of like you look around and it was wait in line for a really long time to get one of the very few openings. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was this disconnected audience strategy thinking about how do you reach people that are younger? How do you reach women? And there didn't seem to be a really authentic, compelling way to do that. Carly and I loved news. We're news geeks. We saw this and as friends would talk about it. And then we would just kind of get more and more serious about what if we started something on those kind of like threads of an idea. And for a while it was called like Project TBD. That was literally like the the folder that we shared. And that's how eventually, you know, we ended up quitting our jobs and starting the company from our living room couch. Take me back to Project TBD. What was in that folder? We had um, this one report actually from years and years ago about how women were falling behind in terms of current events knowledge. And that was really annoying. Yeah. And, you know, looking back on it, I wish I could find that report again, because I feel like it probably didn't diagnose why, which is what we spend so much time talking about now, which is, you know, what is the mental load? What are the expectations on women? What are they taking care of? Especially in this, like, you know, 20, 30, 40s, where you have both your kids, yourself, and your parents kind of depending on you in different ways at the same time. Yeah. But there were pieces of information around the the strength of this demographic of women. We started off really focusing on millennial women. It's the generation we're part of. We were feeling this firsthand. And I think also probably some stuff on their spending power. I feel like I remember those reports starting to come out too. Yeah. About That was some, definitely a drumbeat around that time about women being the spenders who had yes. all the control mm-hmm. in their wallet. That's interesting. Exactly. So I think it was a lot on that, some like logo mock-ups. And we were like, okay, let's go. <laughs> I honestly don't think there was there was yeah, much more. That's pretty yeah. much it. How old were you guys at this point? Do you mind if I ask? 
I was 26. Danielle okay. would like me to tell you that she was 25. Um, for true. the record, Danielle the was 25 record. and Carly was 26. Very yes. important. Correct. And so you just took this leap of faith and you decided, what did that look like? Did you call everyone you knew and you're like, we're quitting our jobs at NBC, which is, by the way, a highly reputable news organization to start a daily newsletter. What did this entail? Because I love hearing the beginning of the stories, and I feel like those are the parts that we all don't hear right now. How did it all start? I mean, what did that take for you guys to make that decision as two people? Because that's the other part. I mean, you guys are co-founders. What does that look like? I'll answer the first part. There are sort of like two things I think to know about us. One is like we are both very goal-oriented and can be really stubborn when we have our kind of mind set on something. And, and this was something that there was just no talking us out of. Like it was, it was this. And like our parents thought we were crazy. Like they literally like did phone calls to talk about like, they're you so too. crazy. <laughs> yeah, like, haha, like they didn't yeah. know each other. Um, and they're like, what are they talking about? They're gonna start a business. And they pretend that that didn't happen, but we heard it. Yeah. I think the other thing to know about us is we both are very, um, I think big believers in signs and like kind mm. of look for like the thing that will push us over the edge. So there were two signs that kind of happened. One was that to your point, we had really good jobs. We were on the track. We didn't start the company because we were like, I can't wait to go leave to start my own thing. Right. We would have been very happy like riding the corporate ladder. It just wasn't ultimately where we could best serve this audience and, and seize the opportunity. And so for me, I was on a show that they switched the show I was on to something else. And it was like the first week of July. And I was like, this is my sign. Like, this is not what I should be doing. And then like the following week, Danielle's promotion got delayed. And that was her sign. Yeah. And we literally both gave notice within, I actually recently found the email of me giving notice, like the formal notice, where I was like, I'm going to go work on a new endeavor and I hope to stay in touch. Oh like, gosh, how professional. We were joking. It was like chat GBT, bro. No, it was, it was like so <laughs> dorky and awkward. And you like Google like really how to horrible. resign from a company yeah. and yes. just cut and yeah. paste it. Yeah. I prefer that now they come with emojis. My friends have sent pictures and letters of people who've resigned in her company recently. And it's one of my favorite things to see. It's really a different beast. So I encourage everyone to yeah. dig into that. Like I will say my letter was quite sign? lovely. <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, there was door. one I saw recently where there was a woman who she went back and forth, up and down, waving goodbye. And it said, hasta la vista. Like, <gasps> check me out on social media. And I just oh remember thinking, God. like, if anyone's mine, listening, mine please don't do that. that. Yes, yeah, do what Carly did. Pol- do what Carly did. opposite of that. So then we, we literally started, you know, July 18th of 2012. And that was it. July 18th of 2012. So you hang your shingle on the door. The skim is open. What is the first thing that you send out? What's the first? What did you start with? What did you launch with? So we launched with the Daily Skim email newsletter. And that was, you know, our only product for years because the company was the two of us. And we would write at night in shifts. And then we would sleep a little bit once it went out at six. And then we would try to get the business off the ground during the day. And what did that entail, getting the business off the ground? You're just trying to get in advertisers and you know, talk me through that. Yes, we actually didn't take advertising for a while, which was both kind of a strategic move and also just we had no clue how to set it up. <laughs> it, it like kind of helped. Good enough reason. Yeah, getting the business off the ground meant two things. The first was really a grassroots push to get people to know about 
what the skim was and to sign up. And I think that at the time we got really good advice, which was like, when you're starting and you want to show proof of concept, you can either show it in two ways. The first is to get like a million people to sign up or it is to start generating revenue. And we were like, it seems like given our skill set, it's easier to go for getting, you know, that really big number Mm -hmm. of people to sign up rather than trying to start monetizing what we're going to do right away. Um, So we would sneak into like Equinox gyms and leave like little postcards. We printed out shirts for our friends and then mailed it to them across the country. We would go, you know, like to a spin studio and and leave little signups. We did a, a college tour. We were not good drivers then <laughs> at all. So we would drive to different schools, set up on like the walk, the main part of the campus, mm-hmm. hand out flyers, wear our skim t-shirts, like bring a sign-up sheet because I feel like we didn't have the iPads that had like the Wi-Fi built in and we weren't official guests. So we couldn't get on to like the school's Wi-Fi. You probably couldn't pay for it at that point either because you didn't have a budget oh, for your, to your company. No, you're not paying for Wi-Fi. No. I remember one time Carly dropped me off at the campus and I ran in and like snuck into a building and put like skim flyers under doors. And it really like was like that. And then we would try to get press. So we would meet with like any editor, anyone who had built a brand and just talk about it, what we had done. And we did that for like a solid year. At the same time, we knew that we had a couple thousand dollars saved up. We knew we had to take on funding to get this off the ground. Mm -hmm. And so that was the other sign of conversations that we were having too. Because people were agreeing to give money in those early days? I mean, no, no. No, they were not agreeing to give money. I'm like, that sounds very nice. I would like to say yes, but we have a spreadsheet of like hundreds of names in red who said, no, I will not give you money. (laughs) I don't think this is a good idea. Go build a pretty app. Email is dead. Why are you emailing me? Women aren't a big enough target market. Like all of these things. And eventually we met the right team. And again, it was a duo, which we felt like was a sign. We were their first New York-based investment. And that is when we started to build our team. So this entire podcast is about confidence and claiming your confidence. You have a spreadsheet of no's. So what did it take to keep going back? You know, you have your parents who are calling each other and in jest being like, what are our daughters doing? You know, and you're not 21 at this point, you're in your mid-20s and people's careers are starting to take off and you're driving around in cars to college campuses, stuffing things in people's mailbox. So what does it feel like when people are saying no to something you truly believe is right and you know will work out one day and you just have to get them to see it? What does that take? So I think there are two things in our favor. One is like, I honestly have no idea how an entrepreneur does that if keeps going. I mean, if they don't already have a product out in market that they're getting feedback on, Mm -hmm. because we had the, we're going to call it luxury of getting all these no's, but yet getting thousands of signups every day from users and people writing in being like, where's this been all my life? This is what I've been waiting for. Can I work for you? Can I be a skin ambassador? How can I help? So for every no, we had literally thousands of people saying, yes, give me more. 
that was like a really good equalizer and emotion. Yeah. And so then I think the second thing is like, you know, going back to we're very goal oriented and can be stubborn. I think we honestly both had this attitude of like, you know, that scene in Pretty Woman, like big mistake. <laughs> like, like I was like, Huge. like you're going to say no to me. I'm like, big mistake. Like you're going to regret mm-hmm. that. And, you know, not to say that there weren't times that like we broke down and I remember getting one no and it just, I really thought we were going to get a yes. And like, I just, it was a Friday afternoon. I just remember sobbing in my bed oh. and being so tired and being like, please God, like, why are you saying no? But I would say for the most part, we kind of were just like, you're going to regret that. And you knew it on the inside. I think now it's a lot easier to be like, when you feel like that calling, you have to do it because we've done it and we've, you know, created something out of nothing. But I do look back on it as a very specific moment in time where I think we had the foresight that it was always going to be really mm-hmm. hard, but that it was never going to be easier than it was at that moment. And I think that that is something that I say to people a lot, which is like doing anything that hasn't been done before or doing anything, you know, entrepreneurial at all. It's really hard and it's a lot harder than you ever imagine. And I think that's like a protective mechanism. It's kind of like if you knew how hard it really is, you probably wouldn't do it. I think that's a blessing kind of that you can't understand it. And at the same time, that's why I think to be successful, you have to have this ability to focus, to block out like noise and also a support system. And I think as you get older, that means a lot of different things, depending on what your situation is. And you were in your mid-20s when you started this. So how many years until you really, like, when did you hit the million-dollar threshold? So that was the first thing. So, you know, you get a million subscribers. How long did that take? So we had 500,000 subscribers at our one-year anniversary. Wow. And it's all just handing out flyers? I mean, that's incredible. It was word of mouth completely. I remember getting it. I remember getting somebody in my office, a younger woman who is probably your age. She definitely said to me, she's like, have you heard about this thing called the skim? I was like, no. And I remember reading it on the subway on my way back to my apartment. And I was like, oh, this is great. Because it, you know, especially in a world when I was in events and taking auctions and out every night, it was just enough information for a cocktail party. I had like, I had all the information I needed at my fingertips and I could read it on my way to work. It was such a genius concept. Okay, so you're at 500,000 your first year. Yeah, actually, I think I said that wrong. I think we were like 300,000 at our one year anniversary. We were 500,000 when we closed our funding a few months later and then a million six months after that. So it was about a year and a little over a year and a half to get to a million users. And I remember one of our first employees, we were like, we need to get to a million users. And he was like... I don't know if it's going to happen. We're like, we need to do it in a year. And we did it in six months. So that was pretty insane. That's incredible. Did you have a big party at a million users? That must have been really fun. We had champagne. That's incredible. Yeah, we opened a bottle of champagne for every 100,000 users. We had like a big bottle for that one. (laughs) You have a million subscribers. People are now investing. What happens next in this situation? Because now you have a real business that people have noticed they're investing in. I mean, this has got to feel exciting, but also a little nerve wracking because again, you're creating it out of nothing. I think then the hardest part happened, which is we started building a team and hiring people and asking them to give up their sense of security to join us on this crazy journey. And part of that is becoming managers for the first time, 
stepping into the role that isn't just a founder role, it's a CEO role. And for us, it's Mm co-CEOs. And that is, I think, the hardest part about starting a company. It's one thing to believe in it yourself and be focused yourself. It's another thing to be able to communicate and lead and motivate other people. And I think we always thought we were good communicators and then we hired people. And I was like, I have no clue how to communicate, apparently. Apparently, I guess that someone told you that then. Was that the, so you, is that how you realized oh, that? Or told, you just... Yeah, I mean, there were years, years <laughs> of executive coaching and feedback cycles. And I think a huge credit to our early employees for giving us that feedback. And I highly recommend, it, it's hard. It's really hard to become a good manager. And I do yeah. think that that is something people are better at kind of innately, maybe, than <laughs> than we were. I think that is, I would say, something that you might get more out of in a big company because we had never managed anyone. So I think everything else you can kind of like learn on the fly and be like, I've never done it before. It's all new. But when you're doing that with someone else's career, that's tough. Um, So we, you know, definitely leaned on our advisors, our board members, mentors to ask questions, everything from, will you interview this person? I think that they're the right person for the job, but I'm not really sure to how do you give feedback? How do you do a review? All of these things that, you know, we left a big company when we were 25. We hadn't actually been through that many formal review cycles. And so how do you guys deal as co-founders with your sort of well, with each other. I mean, it has to be great to have someone who's a resource and a friend and all of those things, but there also have to be moments where you're coming at things from different angles. Like what strategies do you guys use as co-founders to get through those times when you may not see things on the same way? I think some of the best advice that we got early on, and Danielle, correct me, but I think a lawyer told us to do this, was... (laughs) That's good. That's good. Go get a bottle of wine and talk about all of the hard stuff. And basically to treat it, you know, people always say like, you know, starting a company with somebody is like a marriage and like, you know, people use that metaphor, but like it pretty much is when you think about like, you're going to be sharing all of your financial information with somebody. You're going to share an accountant and a lawyer in the beginning. Like you're really like exposing kind of all of your things to somebody and like there has to be a foundation of trust. And so really early on before like taking in a dollar of investment, like we sat down and had the conversation as if it was like, a you know, a prenup, basically. What happens if you need a break? What happens if I need a break? What happens if we disagree? What happens if this happens? Like kind of just went through the list um, and of hypotheticals. And that was really helpful because what it did was, and I would tell anybody starting a business with somebody, you have to have that conversation because one, like in our case, like we are equal partners in this. We came in with the same amount of very little money. <laughs> and, <laughs> we brought uh, nothing to the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that made it easy. And that's not the case for, you know, certain co-founders or maybe it's not a 50-50 situation. But it was really clear, like this is kind of the ownership structure and this is also how we're going to make decisions. And that's always been our red line. And like, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we once interviewed a lawyer who like, I remember Danielle went to the bathroom and he tried to like, 
convince me to like go against something she wanted to do. And I was like, mm, big mistake. He's not our lawyer. Um, <laughs> You're like, this. You know, we are the friends episode where we all stick yeah, together. Well, yeah, exactly. There's your and life I lesson. Think, you know, there's been employees that haven't worked out because they like try to, you know, do that or investors we didn't take on and partnerships we haven't taken on because we're like, here is like the red line. And it works for us. I don't know if that works for everybody else. I think it's really hard to find good examples of strong co-founder relationships. We're not like saying it's so easy, but I think that that foundation of like, here it all is. And, you know, ultimately we're like, how do we make decisions? It's kind of like, one, we have the same goals and we do an annual process checking in of like, are these still our goals? And those goals have changed over time. And two, like, really, I mean, it's kind of, it sounds almost simplistic, like laughably simplistic, but it's like, if one of us cares that much about something, then like that person wins. Yeah. Well, that's great though. But I think that that also goes back to just being friends at the core. Like you're business people, but you're also human beings and you have to like the person you work with. I would assume you wouldn't want to be a co-founder with someone that you didn't want to spend time with. And so if someone really does care about something, I would think and even in a business setting, you want to honor that. In, in a way and make sure that they feel seen and respected as well. So you're in your 20s. This is all sort of moving along. And then what happens after you get to the part where you stop just being an email? How did you move into that next phase of the skim? We built our app, which is subscription-based. And we've always been obsessed with people's routines and women's routines and, and what they use to be efficient or manage their time. And so we all really live by our calendars. And so we thought about how can we program that so that as you're going about your day, you're not missing something. And along that point in time, we started to monetize. So we brought on kind of our first big sponsor partners, JP Morgan, the NBA. We worked with Buick, these really great supportive huge companies who saw the, I think, promise and what we were building. And that started to, I think, shape us into a different type of team. And I remember, you know, the first time we did a big ad deal, we went out and we bought everyone their own laptops because up until that point, we were like asking them to bring their personal one into work. I think also we switched offices. So we moved from basically a one room. It was technically two rooms, meaning the second room was like a coat closet, but we made that a conference room. And we moved into a slightly bigger space. And it felt like, I remember, you know, like building the desks and it just felt kind of like that montage scene for a while on when there's like a fast forward in a movie and you see these new faces coming in with desks and joining the team. I feel like that phase, you know, we parted ways with people for the first time. It was really, I think, kind of when the boot camp of going to business school, law school, grad school, management school, all in one kind of started where it felt like this is no longer the two of us bootstrapping it. This is like we are a real company that's accountable to people. In order to learn these skills and you're learning them on the fly, were you walking into that feeling a little bit like, what am I doing? Or did you feel confident at that point? I think that there was a certain very real sense of we asked a lot of people for advice. Mm -hmm. We made a lot of mistakes. 
we said a lot of, you know, inadvertently the wrong things in terms of not being clear, not setting goals, not, you know, understanding how to give direction or feedback. I do think that we were always honest about what we were good at. And that was building a brand. It was writing. It was telling a story, a narrative. I think, you know, we didn't give ourselves enough credit at the time, but it was about really ideating on a model of advertising and what we did, which was, you know, everyone's doing display and programmatic and we were doing really high quality native sponsorship mm-hmm. and building a huge following. Everything else, we were super honest that we were learning for the first time. And I think that might not have made us any better at it, but I think that there was an authenticity that like our intentions are in the right place and we're asking for help and you know, if you're signing up on this journey with us, like this is kind of the <laughs> the con to it. Like this is what's going to be tough. But I think you're right. I mean, being authentic about that, I'm sure was a relief to a lot of people because they didn't feel like you were just making up things on the fly as you went along and that you were... I don't know if it was a relief. I think that our, especially our earliest team had a lot of patience. Oh, that's good. That's another way to do it then, I guess. Yeah, I mean, truly, like... I think we were thankful about that at the time. I don't think we had the perspective to be as thankful as we are today about it. Yeah. When you started the skim, you were in your mid-20s and now you have gone through what is now one- Now you're not. Now you are in your <laughs> late 20s. Um, you know, one thing that I can say personally was a fundamental shift for me when I was working was having children. I had three children while I was working, all within four years. I took the maternity leaves that were given by Christie's, which were three solid months, like generous policies at the time. But this has really become something as you two have had your own children. We've gone through COVID. This has become a platform that I think has really shown the skim to be deep and very caring towards women and moving this conversation forward. You did a State of the Women campaign that you launched, obviously, in March. You've also done an incredible initiative that I've seen all over my social media feed called Show Us Your Child Care Initiative, which from someone who had none of those things from the back end, you know, I remember my pumping room was in a completely different office. I ended up just pumping in my office with my team because otherwise I would have been gone for 45 minutes every time I had to pump every day. Things like that. When I I remember saying those 10 years ago to people and people would just be like, wait, what? And now the fact that people show us their childcare is incredible to see. And I can't even imagine how many people feel so incredibly grateful to you for having started this. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about having children and then talk to me about what you've done with both the State of the Women campaign and also the Show Us Your Child Care initiative. Well, I don't have children yet. So Danielle can touch on the first part, but there's a few reasons and ways that we like to talk about this topic. And one is that it actually, it doesn't matter whether or not we have kids or not, or if we were female CEOs or male CEOs. Mm. It's as important that male leadership needs to step up in this capacity. I think the second is that we could, you know, have a conversation around, I experienced X, therefore my policies are Y, mm-hmm. or I, I hope to experience something and I want to create policies around that. We actually like to look at it from an economic argument. Women are the single most important demographic to our economy. If we don't keep her, if we don't keep us in the workforce, like we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> we're losing over $3 trillion to our economy. If we don't encourage her to have children, 
we are going to be a society with a declining birth rate. That is not good. And these aren't like hyperbolic statements. These are very real threats to our economy. And so when we started Show Us Your Leave, which is around the lack of national paid family care, it opened up the door for us to have a conversation around how do you think about a company's policies as an employer and as an employee? And I think what we all know, especially, you know, we're talking now three years after a pandemic started, mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. Like what, what you can guarantee is if you are at a job for a length of time, life is going to happen. Yeah. Some of that life is going to be hopefully really great and maybe a wedding, maybe a celebration, maybe the birth of a child. And some of it's going to be really hard and maybe it's going to be a divorce or a death or a pregnancy loss. You don't know but you want to work at a company that is there for you in those moments. And one of the ways that a company can show that is through policies like paid family leave, which we're very much intentionally calling paid family leave and not maternity leave, because it's as important for the partner to take that leave. It's just as important to have a strong policy there as it is to have strong healthcare benefits as it is to have strong childcare benefits. And so that actually brought us to our latest campaign called Show Us Your Childcare, where, you know, and I think, Danielle, I'll let you jump in because, you know, you've spoken really personally about this, but this is another example of like driving women into the ground. You know, we did this state of women survey, a pulse on our audience, and she is not doing well. And it's not funny and it's not like, oh, she's multitasking. How does she do it all? No. It's like she is crumbling and this is an economic threat. Um, So Dan, I'll I'll let you, on that really exciting note, I'll let you talk about (laughs) childcare. So um, I had two babies in two years. I'm like, yeah, I had two under two, both pandemic babies. And I felt like it's all hard. And I think that it is all hard, like degrees of hard is what my experience was. No matter the amount of support you have, it's just never enough. And I was taking all that I could get at the skim. We do have a generous family leave policy, but I think also there's something about having a kid in a pandemic that just introduces a whole different level of anxiety and questioning as parents and partners. And I really felt what our audience is feeling and and showed up in our State of Women report, which is a data-driven report in partnership with Harris and corresponding kind of assessment of that from the skim. And what we found is that, you know, 70% of millennial women felt just completely overwhelmed by the demands of being a parent. And 64% of women are tired of trying to be a super mom, super wife, and or super employee. And I definitely felt that women are expected to try to have it all. And I think that's from, you know, generations in front of us showing us that we could have multidimensional parts of ourselves. And that's amazing. And but I think it's impossible to have that all at the same time, especially without support from your community, financial support, government support, all of these things. And we don't have it in this country. So what that's left with is a severely broken childcare system. And it doesn't support parents. It doesn't support the amazing caregivers in that system. And it doesn't support kids. And, you know, there are a lot of women in different forms of that kind of cycle 
who are paying the price. You know, it's the lack of quality, affordable childcare is pushing moms out of the workforce. It was a huge part of COVID. It's limiting opportunities for advancement. It's costing us, I I mean, it's so expensive. And if you want to be able to put in more at work, you have to have someone taking care of your kids. And, And I don't mean taking care of your kids flippantly. I mean, taking care of them so that your mind is at ease. And that is a whole different level of support that, you know, doesn't get kind of captured in, you know, picking up and dropping off from, from daycare. It is knowing that you can focus because your kids are safe and being cared for and being nurtured. And a lot of that, you know, happens in or around the home. And so it goes unseen. And when you think about that, I think so often because it's not transparent, it's not visual, it's not in front of our faces, it doesn't get talked about. And this is the case for women kind of at all spectrums of their career is like they are adding on, if they're able to, more and more help. And yet it's not something that is glorified as helping you. There's still this expectation. And and what I felt was kind of like, I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't doing it, you know, the best that I could. And I just constantly felt like I was completely overwhelmed. And that was something where I got to step back and, and really think about, I'm really tired. I am going to either get myself and my family more help to be able to show up. And that kind of puts me down a, a spiral of, well, I have the help, but I feel bad about it, which doesn't help anyone. Or I'm going to deny myself the help and then be even more exhausted and not be able to show up for my kids. No, like that's just not, that cannot be this kind of like moment that we're in. And, And the more I started to talk about it, the more that, you know, I realized that I felt like I was inadvertently part of the problem because people would comment to me like when they would see pictures of me working or pictures of my kids. It was like, I don't know how you do it all. And and I don't, I definitely do not. I don't feel like I do. I don't think that that should be the expectation, even though for myself, I still feel like it is. And certainly if you think I'm doing it all, it is because I have had the resources and support that are very expensive and very time consuming to be able to do it. So there's a whole team behind me and not enough people have that. What's been so incredible about the evolution of the skim is how you guys have shown yourselves time and time again to be open to other people seeing what's behind the scenes and being vulnerable and sharing even in the stories that you're telling about the beginning of your company. And then not only sharing these stories, but then doing something about it. And I think that that is what has clearly made you guys so successful and what has made the skim so successful because you can see it And not only can you see you guys doing it, but you can also see what it took to get there. And so I know that the listeners of this show will appreciate that. I certainly appreciate that as someone who's been in the working world for over two decades. So what can we expect next from the skim? What do we we see from you guys coming next? And how do we keep up with you? Well, first of all, I appreciate everything you just said. That means a lot. And I think it actually speaks very much to what you can expect from the scam going forward, which is it's not so much that we are, you know, we've opened the door around like the vulnerability behind the story, but it's actually, you know, we are her, like we, Mm. we are you, like we 
we as individuals are going through the same stuff and the same worries. And, you know, what we're talking about with this generation of, of women, when we say like, we are the most important demographic to our economy, it means that everyone needs to be paying attention. And what's happening right now is it's not working for her. It's not working for her at work. It's not working for her at, at home with the amount of responsibilities that she has. And it's, you know, fundamentally, there are just structures in place that are not designed for her. And so what our mission at The Skin, what has stayed the same is we make it easier to live smarter. And what we've been doing over these last few years is really helping her navigate kind of all of the unsexy stuff that we all deal with. And it's the stuff that we all had those moments and, you know, like, why did I take a class on this in college? And so today, The Skin, we obviously have been there to help her with understanding information and news and her voting opportunities. But we also then moved into personal finance and now we're in health and we're launching into her family and we've been helping her with her purchasing decisions. And so what you'll see is a lot more of us helping her, helping you, helping us make decisions in the most important areas of our lives. I love it. Well, I know I can't wait to see what happens next as this happens. Obviously, as I said, I'm a couple of years older than you guys, but I'm still looking to you for insight and wisdom along the way. So. I cannot thank you guys enough for being here today. Obviously, you have so much on your plate. So even just spending this time speaking with me, it's such a pleasure. It's wonderful to see you both thriving. I'd like to also thank Rockefeller Center for having us today, Newsstand Studios, and my amazing producer, Joe, without whom nothing happens. Uh, I'd like to leave our listeners with one question. You know, we talk about opening the door for other people. What are you doing to open the door for the people around you and behind you? How are you sharing your story in a way that's going to inspire them to understand a little bit more about the life that you're living and the life that they could be living too? Anyway, I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Tune in again next week. But in the meantime, have a wonderful week. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. 